Welcome to the Rationalist Podcast. I'm your co-host Morgan Wack, and I am here with the nimble Eddie Matthews. Ooh, I like that one. That might be my favorite one so far. Oh, okay, yeah. Oh, right. <laughs> That's a, I'm just here to get your approval. So, so far, this is going yeah. great. <laughs> Do you want to tell them what I we're know. talking about today? Yeah, we're going to talk about nationalism. Um, for all of you that made it through the last uh, podcast, <laughs> you know, are <laughs> yeah, those still we, holding on? We're dropping people by the day. <laughs> yeah. Each episode, we alienate a smaller segment of our population. <laughs> Yeah. Um, so I guess nationalism, I don't know, that's kind of a broad concept, but we're kind of looking at, I guess, ep- economic nationalism and how it relates to what we traditionally think is, I guess, more, uh, I guess, as it relates to ethnic nationalism and, um, I don't know, the progression of both. Um, but yeah, we'll launch into it. How did you want to like uh how do you come to this idea how do you why do you want to talk about this i think that nationalism these days almost similar to democracy in a way that it's perceived i think it gets painted with the broad strokes uh with a the paintbrush and such <laughs> uh i think when what do you think of when you think of nationalism is it good connotations or bad connotations um, I guess I'll just give my knee-jerk response. Yeah. And lately, it, it's the bad connotations. Uh-huh. It's, it's the make America great again, Trump rally, Bud Light in hand, tailgating, fuck yeah, kind of thing. Gotcha. Well, those sound amazing to me, so no <laughs> way. <laughs> um, I just described what I'm doing this Yeah, that sounds basically. like a perfect barbecue. Um, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's the thing, is I think that... To me, nationalism is similar to uh, Winston Churchill's famous quip that democracy is the worst form of government, except for all those other forms that have been tried. I see nationalism as being the worst form of kind of collective identity, except for all the other forms that have been tried. Um, And Mm. there are obviously different ways to kind of foment nationalism um, in ways that are terrible, like any other identity. But I also think that it's one of the most inclusive forms of identity that's ever been created when you are able mm-hmm. to do it correctly, which which is why it's has so many disruptive uh, tendencies, because it is so inclusive. You can get millions of people to join in on something that you can't really do with other forms of identity. Um, mm-hmm. And I think the arguments against nationalism aren't really based in fact. You can't just get rid of nationalism. What you're really doing is allowing people or not allowing but kind of pushing people towards other sorts of identification um and other sorts of social grouping um and i i just have more personal hope that we can rebuild kind of a nationalist identity in a way that's healthy and protective of both the majority and the minority populations um and i think that's really important and i think that by kind of associating nationalism with World War Two and like modern day economic nationalism and and sort of the bifurcation of like the American political parties, 
makes it difficult to build that sort of that meta narrative, which which is one of your favorite ways of of saying it. Um, and yeah, I, I just think it's an important concept that is more nuanced than we give it credit for. Yeah, if you do away with nationalism, you do away with the nation state. And if you do away with the nation state, what do you have left? Again, like, yeah, do you want oligarchy? Do you want theocracy? Do you want um, <laughs> any of these, uh, you know, it's do Socialism? you want anarchy? <laughs> <laughs> so I think, I think it's a good point in that we have to kind of, um, I think, resurrect a more... I guess just comprehensive notion of mm. nationalism that isn't, yeah, I guess isn't, is, is a party. Um, I mean, without party, right? It, it is, uh, trend transcends party. Um, and that's really hard to do, <laughs> you know, it it's is, really hard yeah. to not embed nationalism in a certain set of ideals <laughs> or a certain set of, um, things. And I guess that's why uh, I, I guess we'll kind of talk about American nationalism for a moment. And that's why we have the constitution, right? That's why we have, um, the bill of rights. That's why we have, uh, 4th of July. That's why we have kind of these, this shared history that we can be proud of and kind of come back to, right? Yep. That's why we have democracy. Absolutely. I mean, I think the shared history portion is probably what we're going to get into most. Um, it's probably the most complicated but it is so important for people to have kind of shared recollections and ability to come together and agree upon certain things that are central to our identities as a nation. And I think a lot of that has been lost over the last 30 years, uh, where yeah. we tend to identify ourselves based on parties or you know, political ideologies, personal beliefs, um, and things that are not inclusive. And I, I wonder if you think that this is because the U.S. has become a superpower and doesn't really have an external threat from which to unite us against. Do you think that plays a role or do you think that's just kind of separate issue? Yeah, I think it plays a role. I think the unprecedented aspect of uh, American democracy is the biggest thing here. Like, it, it really is still an experiment. Like, democracy is never been done at the scale of 350 million people you know mm -hmm. and so i think just how like all the roadblocks that we're running into as we're expanding and like the discussion of immigration and the declining birth rate and all of these things is it is forcing us to constantly like reimagine and reconfigure and adapt um what we mean by nationalism what we mean by um the things that bind us together as Americans moving forward. And I think that's why you have such like just difficult growing pains in terms of what were the current era that we're going through. Right. Um, so I think just how unprecedented it is that we are running a democracy of 350 million people um, is uh, the biggest stress test that we have to kind of work through because we don't have a roadmap of how this is supposed to look, you know, Absolutely. we're making up as we go along. Yeah. And I think that it's not only that it's on such a large scale, but it's also a product of our era. I think, think back to you know, the beginning of the 1800s, 1900s, even if 
you were some sort of you know international like transatlantic broker you interacted with people from your country 95 percent of the time because it's just so difficult to go to these other places and they're going to speak different languages and there was no way to have a sort of shared identity outside of your homeland and the people you grew up around um, and i think today with things like the internet and also a, an explosion of crises that can really only be solved by connecting with people such as climate change that you can't really solve by yourself it becomes a lot easier to say well I don't really feel like I'm that connected to people in the south of the U.S., but I actually have a lot in common with the British or the French or the Germans and maybe somebody from South Africa or Australia. And I don't really think that that type of identity formation was possible in the past. Um, and it just complicates matters even further when the boundaries, the physical boundaries, are no longer a constraint to the, the formation of identities beyond that. Yeah, no, I think that's a good point. Um, I mean, that's certainly been my experience of living in Wales for 18 months. That, to me, feels so much more of a piece with, uh, I don't know, my upbringing in Southern California than I'm sure moving to, like, the uh, the bayou would, you know? Yeah, of course, yeah. Like, I'm sure that would be a much different world. Um, and so... I think that's the challenge that we face ourselves is is what where is there the continuity in identity of somebody who grows up in Cambridge, Massachusetts and somebody who grows up in rural Louisiana, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's it's also difficult to like the more you kind of establish these boundaries, it kind of immediately has the impact of making anything outside of that more uh, threatening. Um, so you, you, you really have to like balance this fine line where you build a collective identity, but one not based on kind of a vitriolic hatred of the other, which is really difficult well, because that's the best way to form those identities. Yeah, I think that, well, I, yeah, I know by best you mean efficient. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's the easiest, I would say. Yeah. No, no worries. I mean, I think you can get a lot of good examples here for uh, from countries in, in, in Africa where nationalism is incredibly low because a lot of these countries were colonies until 50 years ago. And there's a, quite a few different ethnic groups and religious groups. There's actually more genetic diversity within Africa than the entire rest of the world outside of Africa. There's all these very distinct groups that have kind of just been thrown together in this randomly drawn boundary. And it poses a real problem for modern governments because modern governments run on tax funds and the ability to gain legitimacy from mm. the people. And it's been shown that the more legitimate people find the government, the more that people, uh, the higher that people rank their national identity versus their ethnic and religious identities, the more people pay taxes, the more people pay attention to elections, the more people participate in like inner outer group, um, ethnic trade. Um, and so it's, it's the type of thing that we take for granted because the nationalist identities have formed over time in, in Europe and in the West for a lot yeah. longer, but it doesn't mean that they're going to continue to form that way or that they're not going to fall out of formation given these new kind of constraints on nationalist uh, commitments to, to nationalist ideologies and nationalist politics. Yeah, I think that's why I'm, uh, I have a lot of sympathy actually for the 
kind of assimilationist argument versus multiculturalist, um, because mm -hmm. I think that the multiculturalism argument doesn't have enough of uh, a binding element to it, to the nation state. Like, I think it's, a, I, I think that that is overlooked to a dangerous degree, you know, because, and I understand, you know, being on the liberal side of things, I understand the impetus for overlooking that and the kind of danger in being too uh, strict about what connotes citizenship right or what can or what makes you american but by the same token like if you relax those into nothing again you dissolve the entire nation state and that of course can be co-opted and turned into like an uh a, a racial kind of judgment and that's obviously not okay but i think that it's not of course like the idea of assimilation is that anybody can go through the right channel for assimilating and you can be from any ethnicity and any background, etc. But you assimilate into a, a set of agreed upon principles, right? With the constitution leading that, those principles. Yeah, absolutely. I am going to pitch another one of my wacky policy ideas like I did last episode. This is uh, when I used to work for the International Rescue Committee in Sacramento. They basically have brag alert. <laughs> I didn't do much, <laughs> Just but uh, the they they're very poorly funded, and they take a lot of refugees from overseas who don't speak English, um, who have very different way of life, who basically have one year, and it's not all day. They still have children to worry about and education, and so for that one year essentially all they can do is try to teach them English because they can't even get to anything else. Um, I think the the U.S. should fund a sort of like two-year kind of assimilation program, like you're saying. Nothing to you know challenge religious beliefs or anything that they're bringing over, but just to teach them what it means to be American and to help them uh, become successful and feel like they're included in the local communities. Um, in places like Germany and... I think France, um, a lot of European countries, I think North Korea or South Korea, um, they all have like a one or two year commitment that you have to have coming out of high school, where essentially you can either join the military for a year or you can join uh, like a social services program um, where you basically volunteer in like a hospital or an old folks home. And everyone has to do this um, as, a, as a citizen of these countries. Um, and I think something like that, I mean, it might be hard to get past, but something like that where you're seeing people outside of your immediate social circle, you're finding, it would just build a collective experience that everyone who's an American has gone through. And I think that those sort of collective experiences in a positive way are extremely difficult uh, to to create. Um, and that might be something we need to look into if, if we continue to kind of fall out of, of grace with, with one another in, in the US. I don't know, how do you, th what do you think about that? Yeah, I was actually gonna bring this up too, the kind of one year service. I know there's been kind of a perpetual um, I don't know if they would call it like a lobbying group or I think it's more just like a nonprofit trying to establish this um, and like and, okay. and talking to people in Congress. I know John McCain was a big um, advocate of this mm. and um, I think it's a great idea. In the movie, uh, in the movie is it the, the Ides of March? Yeah. 
George Clooney. George, that's George Clooney's like big part. Oh, really? He's the fake president in that movie. Yeah, yeah. Um, and he says, they said, oh, how are you going to get it to pass? And he goes, we're passing a law for young people and young people don't vote. <laughs> It'll pass easy. <laughs> and there's something to be said about that. Yeah, jeez. Um, no, yeah, I, th- I think it's a really good idea. I think um, you could start small and then just incentivize it for, I don't know, a decade until it becomes more normative rather than kind of I don't know, mandating it or prescribing it or making it a requirement that you have to do. I think if you... Like maybe uh, subsidies for or continual education or something? Um, like after, like the, kind of like the military. If you go to the military, they'll pay for... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I think, uh, yeah, loan forgiveness. And well, I guess at that point it would be prior to... I guess they could do it after college too. I don't know. There could be a... Well, they could give you some sort of voucher, you know? Yeah. Like if you do this program, we'll pay for half a year tuition. Yeah, or, or I was like also thinking about like uh, in the point system that different firms would, you know, allocate towards uh, applicants, that that would give them a, a boost, right? Or that would put them at the top of the pile uh, if they... if they Yeah, and that makes sense. Boost. Does every school use that point system though? Or I feel like every school is kind of... Like the, every school has their own unique. Oh yeah, system. no, it does. There's no kind of agreed upon thing, but I I think like just yeah, internally yeah. with the big the I'm thinking of like Microsoft. I don't know how they go about it, but I oh, assume I gotcha. some sort of that type of you know like merit based. Uh, yeah, thing yeah, would, would work. I mean, I feel like if the like because the government helps fund like all the public schools, I feel like they could put a quota where you have to take so many kids who have done these community service systems or something yeah. like that. Um, so maybe you just increase your odds of getting into a school you want or something like yeah, that. Yeah, I think it'd be great. Um, I think yeah. also, I guess, kind of building off that point, something that's so obvious that everybody I've talked to agrees about uh, in this point is that, I mean, it, could, it should start earlier than college too, but in high school and definitely in college as part of general education, there should be a civics um, curriculum element to the course or to the education um it just makes sense and, and it's it's nonpartisan and it's it goes to this idea of building national identity right is making people feel that they are enfranchised um and understand how their government works and in their participation and their in the necess- necessity for them to participate in that so just like a just a civics course to get people knowledgeable and then maybe even excited about how uh, this works, you know, and how they can participate in it. So, I 100% agree with you. I think I've had a conversation about this with a few people, and, you know, the one retort that you always get is like, oh, but it would be so difficult to decide on the curriculum. And I think that's true, but I don't think that's a reason maybe. not to try. I don't know. I think it's... that I... – I don't know. I mean, I think that even if those debates are happening and we're like, what are we teaching our kids that we can collectively teach everyone? That's the debate we should be having anyway. Of course, so, yeah. And start from... I think it'd be better to have that and... Start yeah. with the Constitution. Like that in and of itself. Maybe mm-hmm. the civics class is just the Constitution and you just teach what the Constitution says and that would be more than our current president knows. Like, True. Yeah. Shit, Very man. true. Yeah, okay, so I actually heard a, an interesting theory on this. I think I read it somewhere. I'm sorry to the, the author that wrote this. And I can't remember who it was. But they had said that historically in the U.S., there was a, like more civics-oriented education in primary school, but it was all religious-based. It was based on a lot of um, like uh, parables 
and a lot of like stories about ethics and morals in, in the U.S., but they had a very religious, religious connotations. And when uh, people started to realize that, okay, we can't be teaching this in school, we literally have in the Constitution it says separation of church and state. Instead of redesigning these parables about being American and things as kind of non-religious uh kind of, I don't know, just short stories, they got rid of them entirely. And then the whole thing faded away. And now there aren't these shared stories that people have across the U.S. Mm. Um, and I thought that was really interesting. So something like that that has worked in the past um, would be a very easy fix, um, or at least an improvement. Yeah, that's interesting. I think, like, I mean, obviously I'm partial to this because I'm doing a PhD in creative writing, like I see myself as a fiction writer to a large degree. And the reason that I'm devoting my career to that. Hey, you're the next, you're the next Nicholas Sparks, man. I keep telling you. Me and Nikki. Um, <laughs> so the reason I'm devoting my career to that is because the power of narrative is extremely, uh, it always just captures imagination in a way that um, uh, just facts and data don't. Right. So the idea being that, you know, I heard this report that, uh, after so obama kind of wanting to dispel the notion that all muslims were terrorists right in in uh speeches kind of responding to uh i guess just combating that notion uh, i remember one speech he just talked about the muslim americans who kind of were involved in building the sears tower and like different olympic athletes and um, and those types of stories that uh, put the narrative forward that that challenge this kind of um, prevailing narrative in some parts of the country where Muslims are dangerous people. And he's like, actually, they were integral to the um, establishment and progression of America and the American dream and all of these things. And then... I guess um, there was data where, like, the Google searches after that speech were in line with, like, uh, Muslim Americans, Sears Tower, and, like, those types of things, rather than um, Obama just making a speech condemning, uh, you know, uh, ethnic violence against Muslims, you know? Yeah. No, I, I mean... So... The way that we discuss these things today is very easy to critique because it basically takes none of these kind of holistic principles into account. It's all about adversarial and painting the other side as being against the ideas of the nation rather than disagreeing about what those ideas are. And I think that is somewhere we need to start, but it's also something that's easier said than done. Yeah, I mean... Yeah, it's always going to be easier to say... Um... I guess to criticize than to construct something that construct anything, right? So I guess I'm just thinking about it, like it's always going to be uh, easier to denigrate um, someone's vision of American society than creating your own vision of American society, right? Absolutely. I mean, I have this every single time we we read a paper and. In our class, you know, it's like, oh, they did this wrong, they did this wrong, and then anyone ever asks how you can improve it, then it's just blank, blank stares. I yeah, I mean, I think that's why it's like leadership takes courage and vulnerability is that 
Yeah, you're in the driver's seat, and you can't just like sit back and and just pick apart what everyone else is doing if you're kind of the one steering the ship, right? To mix my metaphors, <laughs> I think that. Hey, I <laughs> fair enough. I think that um, I don't know. I think those types of conversations, and miss, maybe this is why nationalism, like a true nonpartisan nationalism conversation, just is never talked about. Because there's no per there's no perceived common ground, and it feels like a dead end. But I think that yeah. actually, if like fostered under the right circumstances, with treating other people in the conversation with dignity, that we actually mm -hmm. do find that we could foster a nonpartisan, inclusive, nationalist message that would be appealing. Because again, we have the Constitution, and none of us are going to say that we. I guess don't abide by and revere the constitution, right? So it's like if we absolutely if yeah. if if we uh, affirm that we believe in the principles that the constitution purports, then why are we so, I guess, allergic to the notion of having the conversation about implementing those principles? You know, through a narrative in American society that can be applied to all Americans, regardless of party. Yeah, I mean, it's the Bill of Rights, not the Bill of Wrongs, right? <laughs> nice. <laughs> um, yeah, I think uh, I think we can distill this down to the idea of history that we talked about before. I think if you looked at the current interpretations of American history, you get two narratives. There's one where the U.S. has done nothing wrong. This is the one that was pretty much up until like the 1980s. You'd only really read about what the what america did great what's uh you know democracy of the world bastion of freedom winner of two world wars all that good stuff and then there, since then there's been this rightful backlash and been like okay wait a second this there was a lot of terrible things that america did but i think it's also if you're from that camp now it's you can't bring up things that america did well it's only things that america did terribly uh, without kind of context um to kind of water that down and Wait. and uh, kind of explain why. So what you're saying is that you hate America? Yeah, I'm saying a lot of people, the way that they discuss American history, it's done in a degrading way rather than a kind of nuanced understanding of our of our nation. And those people hate America? They, all of them hate America. <laughs> I just like, this is how stupid and devolved this conversation gets, where it's like, where, where you bring up the Filipino insurrection, you're like, hmm yeah, that wasn't great. Or the uh, genocide of indigenous Native Americans. And you're like, yeah, that wasn't great. And then it's like, well, we did a lot of great stuff too. And, uh, you know, you can't make an omelet without breaking a few eggs. And what is it? You hate America? <laughs> yeah, I mean, obviously, like, I think both things need to be taught and understood in a more nuanced way. American history is not terrible it's also not great but neither is any other countries um and the fact that we're here means that we have the power to kind of move past that and become what we want the nation to be so that when our grandchildren look back they can say oh we're actually proud of this point in time in american history um and i think that's difficult to do if we can't even decide what that narrative rests on yeah so what does the narrative rest on like I said, I'm more of a, a nuanced look into things and an understanding of not just what happened, but why they happened, I think is one of the really important things that gets looked over. Um, I was having a discussion with 
someone the other day and they were saying, oh, but America invaded or sponsored rebels in this country. And I'm like, okay, but why did they do that? Like, obviously it was bad and they overthrew like the government, but why? And it was, it was clearly because the, in this circumstance, because Russia had put missiles in Cuba and the U.S. was terrified that they were going to get um, attacked in their own backyard in Latin America. Mm. Um, and it's obviously not a justification, but if you don't understand why people are doing things, why certain things are happened, if you just paint it as evil... This person, they didn't really have a, a point as to why they would have done this other than just being maybe corporate greed. And it's like, okay, maybe, but almost definitely not. Um, yes, it's terrible. How could we have gone about it in a better way? How, what type of world do we want to construct where we can protect ourselves from these sorts of things, but also do it in a way that we feel we've respected you know, other nations and other people? Yeah, well, it's scary to to look into the nuance and look into the why, like, all of that it's scary to look at a situation that has all bad options and choose one you know or of course like, yeah so it's comforting to be like george w bush was evil bottom line boom <laughs> yeah yeah uh and dick cheney was evil and so it's however <laughs> Obviously, the counterfactual of us not invading Iraq seems to be a lot better and more appealing than us, in fact, invading Iraq. But mm. I think that it's a lot more complicated than uh, just being able to to level platitudes at people you don't agree with, you know? It's also very difficult to explain how emotion affects the populations and people's decision-making in retrospect. I think when you look at the cold hard facts of a lot of these examples, it's like, okay, that was clearly the worst decision. But then you think about it at the time, you know, the U.S. had just been attacked. Like, yeah, they needed to do Bush, something. Bush had like emotion. a 94% approval rating right after 9-11. Yeah, so it's, uh, it's, it's easy to overlook those facts and just look at the, the facts of what happened and why people did things. Not that I'm agreeing with that case, but it, even in past histories, uh, past examples of history and and what leaders, not just from America, but any country decide to do is so based in these emotional entanglements that it can be really difficult to kind of peel those apart. Yeah, it's a good, it's a really good point in terms of when we read history and reflect on it, 50 years after it happened, there's no pathos to it, you know? And so yeah, everything's, yeah, everything feels very straightforward and it feels very easy to, to kind of um, see clearly what the right course of action was. However, people are people, you know? Like we do, we, we do yeah. not think rationally Typically, and I think that's why you have to have people in leadership uh, who don't all agree on the same exact things or, or approach to the problems. Like you need a diversity of opinion in order to kind of foster something that is could generally be defined as progress. 
I think you need a diversity of opinion, but you also need a foundation from which to build. And if it is the Constitution, like you say, I'm I'm all fine with that. But we still need to ensure that everyone understands the basic tenets of the Constitution. Yeah. Um, and the basic tenets of American democracy as a whole. Well, and that, and that we're not. I mean, this goes back to our democracy uh, episode. And we need to have <laughs> shout out, shout out. If you haven't listened to it, <laughs> I know. Go back. Um, just the idea that <laughs> the catalog is growing by the day. I know how we have to, we have to design our democracy in a way that everybody who's an American citizen, uh, has like easy access to vote, right. And participate in the democracy in the first place. And we're not a gerrymandering in a way that just allows congressmen, uh, to get reelected without representing their, cons- their actual constituents, not just you know, whoever they want their constituents to be, not choosing their constituents. Absolutely. Well, how you do you have anything else to say on this, or did we solve nationalism? Um. Well, I don't know. It's. I think that how nationalism relates to globalism is an interesting kind of um, dilemma too, in the sense that rather than looking at nationalism not globalism but nationalism and globalization so rather than as looking at those two as binary with the idea of like if you're investing abroad if you're if you're giving aid abroad if you're sending jobs abroad then you're taking jobs away like uh one of the articles we we looked at was talking about how trump's like nationalist agenda is like very zero-sum and um, Elizabeth Warren's is could generally be, I guess, categorized as pro America while being, I guess, pro globalization with the idea of mm-hmm. like, I don't know, you explain it. Yeah, I mean, I think the idea is you really you're not going to stop globalization. I mean, the, the US is the most dominant force in the world, both militarily and economically. Um, and you, the best we can kind of do is kind of the lock-in argument is design a form of globalization that works for us and, and the world. Um, and I think trying to do that is, is easier said than done, mm. like a lot of these issues. But I think the idea that we can kind of just retreat and slow down the forces of globalization by making everything a relative gains argument is something that might be politically popular in some areas but is not a sustainable long-term strategy and it leads to an inability of the globe to come together and focus on the problems that we really can't solve ourselves well it's a strange line of logic to think that you can batten down the hatches raise tariffs and that all of your trade partners are still going to want to trade with you instead of going elsewhere and then you'll still be the most dominant market you know like that's a really strange line of logic to me it might work for 10 years but it's not going to work for 50 years. The problem is that short time horizons for leaders, you know, they don't need it to work for 10 years. Yeah, that's what's so... Four years. That's that's why so much of uh, Congress and especially this presidency is so bereft of real leadership because they're not even looking at five years. They're looking at like six months, you know? And it's like... Yeah, if that, they're like, hey, when does that next opinion poll come out? Yeah. Tuesday, all right. It, throw the tears It's like out silly, there. and I I mean, I'm sure I fall prey to this as much as anyone, but it's silly to think that 
the current booming economy is due to anything that Trump did. You know? Like, it's silly to think that the recession had anything to do with what Obama did. Like, the... It seems to me that the economic policies of the previous administration have much more to do, not with their administration, like the ramifications have much more to do with the following administration, because it takes time to implement and see how the markets change and all this stuff, right? Well, the problem is that macro macroeconomic policy in particular is extremely complicated. So there are certain things where you can change immediately have an effect on the market the next day but there are most of the things to have a healthy market requires long-term sustainability yeah. and commitments to the underlying economic institutions so you're, you're absolutely right on that um and that's what's terrifying is that al almost all of these things require decades to build up trust legitimacy solid foundations but they require just you know a day of stupid decisions uh to ruin for <laughs> for generations um, and so, I mean, that's kind of like American trust abroad. Uh, our the State Department took years to develop relationships with with foreign states and to kind of embed uh, American ideas in the capitals of all these countries. And then Trump came in and decimated uh, the State Department's uh, outreach programs. And even if he leaves and we re-implement them, they're not going to be the same. Uh, it would take it will take another two generations to to build them back up. And I think you can say the same thing about the economy, which so far he's he's basically stayed out of. Um, this is we're kind of getting off track here, but the the scary part is that in one day you can you can ruin things so quickly. It's a uh, the bulls walking around the china shop, and everything's starting to shake. But uh, so far we've avoided any any dramatic catastrophes. But uh, still, a couple years left. Hopefully, only. A well, couple. it tampers with the. It tampers with the nationalist American identity when you have somebody so irresponsible representing the country for four years, you know, and and mm -hmm. also setting the tone for half of Congress, you know, and also bringing yeah, out the absolutely. worst in the other side. Well, sometimes the worst and sometimes the best, you know. Yeah, and so I given a microphone to. People, you probably don't want a microphone with. What do you mean? Which is which is always scary. Um, like basically, the current administration has enabled a very negative form of nationalism to kind of rear its ugly head that it hasn't done for a couple decades. Um, and whether or not that's here to stay, we don't really know. But this whole populist wave—I mean, you could argue that it was there waiting for someone like Donald Trump to come around, but it also legitimizes itself and it's a vicious circle um, in that now that people realize that there is this voter base that can be appealed to on these sorts of kind of um, xenophobic, uh, anti like national, like uh, ethnic nationalist demands, there's going to be more of an incentive to reach out to this base in the future. Um, and that's something we're going to have to deal with as well. Do you, in your opinion, do you think that the, that... That nationalist narrative, we're talking the Charlottesville, the Unite the Right uh, yeah. element that, like it or not, is part of American society. Do you think that's mm -hmm. better latent or do you think that's better out in the open to, to, See, the to, try, is, to, to try to ameliorate what is The problem is whether or not you think that there's a difference in how much support it generates latent or manifest i think if you think that the latent version which i do kind of take this 
opinion is when it's latent, less people are exposed to it, and it's less. It becomes less of an option for people that might be uh, teased by that sort of thought mm. um, pattern. Um, when it's manifest, and you see it every day, the people that are going to engage with that sort of behavior or have that sort of mindset are more likely to join. And so I think it perpetuates itself. Yeah. Um, so I, I do think that latent would be better, but uh, once the cat's out of the bag, uh, it's walking around Charlottesville. So yeah. what are you going to do? Yeah. No, I guess... You don't, don't really have the choice anymore. <laughs> yeah, I agree that it's better latent, but also now we know what we're dealing with, you know? Absolutely. I mean, you could see this around the world as well. I know we've just been talking about the U.S., but these days it's very difficult to have things that have a supporter base remain latent because in some country somewhere this supporter base is going to get out, not just like the ethnic nationalist groups, but any sort of group or minority uh, opinion that in the past would have been shut down by the the inability to access this information because it was just nightly news and there was no internet or the ability of these groups to become publicly um, seen in the public eye in countries like the Philippines or other places where you wouldn't necessarily have run into these problems before. Yeah. Yeah. And I think just to kind of finish up this conversation and to, to kind of tie into the uh, nationalism and globalism, gl- gl- sorry, globalization as uh, I think being able to work hand in hand is the idea of immigration. Um, so I think that every, well, most people would agree that we do not want illegal immigration, right? Uh, what we want is an immigration policy that you know, promotes economic well-being in America that uh, abides by the humanitarian policies of the UN and uh, provides for appealing opportunities for immigrants to meet the needs of um, whatever sector in American society that that has that need, right? Or has that job or that family or, or et cetera. And so the idea of it being a good American nationalist policy to invest uh, materially in Central America and build up those economies and make those try to, you know, and make those more flourishing uh, countries and safer uh, would curb, I mean, ideally, would curb this flow of illegal immigration and would help solve this kind of like broken immigration system and, and make those places more livable so that people uh, would not be fleeing these countries for fear of domestic violence or, you know, uh, gang violence or um, one of the myriad kind of reasons that that people flee for their lives from some of these northern triangle countries yeah i mean i think there's two things there. i think you could add to your list of things we want the immigration system to be that sort of assimilation that we talked about earlier the ability for people to come in a way that allows them to kind of become integrated with american society and have them feel like they are americans after a certain point of time um that's very important that when you have a system of illegal immigration it's more like you're doing the exact opposite you're forcing these people to to hide and 
like basically exclude themselves from an integration into society, which is really damaging. Um, secondly, I think that because we think of nationalism as domestic issues, I, I think that you're absolutely right. I think it's it's wrong to think of it that way. The promotion of democracy and stability and peace has always been part of kind of the American mythos and the promotion of those sorts of values in other countries that need our help um, is something, I can't think of something more American than that. Um, and protecting, putting up walls and protecting ourselves is, is not what we've been about for, for generations. Yeah. Um, I... While there is a very isolationist bend, I think that downstream protections have never really shown, been shown to work. I guess my definition in that, uh, when I mentioned American nationalism, was kind of a concession to the right in terms of not putting the moralistic bent to it, you know? Mm -hmm. um, although I agree, like how I think of America, hopefully using its wealth and dominance is to uplift poorer nations. Um, I think if we put that as part of how we think of American nationalism, uh, it just muddies it with trying to build a, a, a coalition with people on the conservative side of things. Absolutely. There are definitely paths forward where we can kind of rebuild an inclusive version of American nationalism, but it's going to take both sides to realize that this is, you know, a dire need. Yeah. Which it is. Cool. Yeah. Well, uh, thanks for walking us through that, man. So I can't hear you. You're saying something right now? What? You're like cutting in and out. Oh, really? Yeah. So just, yeah, to, yeah. just to wrap this whole shebang up, thanks for, uh, Talking through nationalism with us. We solved nationalism. Go tell your local congressmen and women. Uh, we've we've uh, we figured it out. Spread the word. Um, please join us next time on Rationalish. Adios. Adios.